day and welcome to Inside Rugby League, the Yorkshire Evening Post podcast. My name's Richard Byram and joining me on the line again today is my colleague Peter Smith, the Yorkshire Evening Post Chief Rugby League writer. Hi Peter. Hi Richard, how are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Uh, Excellent. Quite a decent day today, had a little walk out, and a bit of fresh air. Hope <laughs> everyone else is yeah. able to get out and about and keeping well. Yeah, it's all about small pleasures at the moment, isn't it? It is. So just <laughs> get your entertainment and your your um, your joy from life where you can. Unfortunately, we're um, we're what two months into this now, and, and rugby league wise, still no uh, real sign of any light at the end of the tunnel. Although um, there've been a couple of developments this week on various things. Yes. Yeah, you were mentioning to me just before we came on air the, the latest with the salary cap and some clubs obviously wanting to reduce it from 1.8 million, others happy to leave it the same. Um, I think as you pointed out in that conversation to me, quite a lot of the clubs don't spend up to it anyway, so why it needs tinkering with is a bit of a mystery. But uh, I think Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think some, some clubs want it increased. Um, Clubs. It seems that clubs in Yorkshire are, are um, in favour of being reduced. Yeah. The, the argument against reducing it is, like you say, you don't have to spend the um, the full cap anyway. So, so why why bother reducing it? Um, I think the concern from from those clubs that want it reduced is that if some clubs can't afford to spend the full amount while others can, then it, it'll lead to an imbalance in the competition. But, let's say, it, it, it's, I'm not sure there's any need to actually reduce the amount um, clubs can spend on players. No, I think... I think competition, sorry. really, we're, we're what? This is the 25th Super League. The competition should, should be reached in a state where it, it's able to increase the cap on a regular basis, you'd fear that if it's reduced, then Rugby Union and, and the NRL maybe will be looking to um, to plunder Super League to take the top talent away. Obviously, it is different circumstances this year with COVID-19. Um, I know a lot of clubs think that next year is going to be just as um, just as difficult financially. Yeah. So we're talking perhaps about special circumstances. But um, we've seen today, we're recording this on Tuesday, and Warrington have just announced the signing of Greg Inglis. Yeah. So clearly some clubs have, have got money to spend. Um, and you look at the amount of attention that signing has has um, already attracted, and this is for 2021, but it's one of the top trending um, trends on uh, social media. So... It shows that big signings do attract attention. I'm sure that Warrington will get great value from Inglis, certainly off the field. I mean, he's one of the best, or on his day was one of the best players in the world. He's 33 now, not played for a year due to injury. So we'll have to see how how he comes back. But um, the signing will provide value for money for Warrington, I've I've no doubt about that in terms of season ticket sales and just general an increase in interest in their club. You, I wonder a little bit about the timing. It, it doesn't particularly sit right with me that players are 
are um, on furlough and players and staff are having the wages cut and a big signing like this is being announced. I mean, I've no idea what sort of deal he's on, but he won't be coming for peanuts, will he? So I, I could understand players being upset that um, that this sort of deal has been broken at this time, but it it's a big signing for Super League and it's an exciting one for Super League. There's no doubt about that. It is indeed. I was just watching uh, Warrington, as often clubs do now, put out a tweet saying, you know, good news for next year, fans. And it was a selection of some of his big tries and big hits. And as you say, certainly a great addition to the competition if he can come back to anything like he was before he did retire. And Absolutely, yeah. Like I say, he was, he's a former Golden Boot winner, a former... NRL Player of the Year. I think he's 39 caps for Australia. It's Queensland captain. He's one of the modern, the modern greats. But as we've mentioned, not played since um, April 2019 when he retired due to injury. So you've you've got to wonder how much that long layoff has um, has taken out of him. Yeah. But quality players can come back from long layoffs. So I think I can guarantee that Holly retired. Um, came back a couple of years later and it was like he hadn't been away. So um, the the very best players can do it. Yeah. Uh, just going back to the salary cap for a moment, a thought that came to me while you were speaking, Peter. You know, as you say, clubs quite often don't spend up to the cap and, and therefore there is a, an unofficial imbalance in that, say, the teams like Leeds and Wakefield and Warrington and Saints can't afford to get in the players that the likes of, say, Wakefield and Salford can't. And, and that's accepted, but the cap also allows those clubs like Leeds and, excuse me, Wakefield and Salford to bring in, you know, maybe one star player. It just gives them that bit of flexibility. And like Huddersfield did at the end of last season with Aidan Cesar or Cesar, uh, not sure how you pronounce that, apologies to Aidan. But, you know, one great sort of marquee player from Australia who came in and the salary cap just gave them that flexibility to be able to add him to the squad and, from what we saw earlier in the season, he certainly made a difference to the Giants this season in the few games that he played. And yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, sorry, that's certainly... sorry, Richard. Sorry, <laughs> one of the perils of not being sat facing each other. But <laughs> um, no, all I was going to go on to say was then, of course, for a club like Wake, it does allow them to maybe get a day for feet and keep hold of them for longer than perhaps maybe in the past. You know that. The, the, another club would have come in and just signed him and that would have been the end of it but with the cap at least you know that some clubs can't always come and cherry pick your best player all the time Possibly so but the the idea of it is is well to stop clubs going bust Yeah. and um, also to even up the competition we know that it doesn't necessarily stop clubs from going bust Um Bradford yeah. Bulls, obviously, were the, the classic example of um, classic example of that. Does it even up the competition? Well, you look at Super League, and as we say, we're in the 25th season now, and there have been, is it four winners? We've had um, yeah. Bradford Saints, Wigan and Leeds have dominated it over that time, and you, you would have hoped and expected that over such a long period of time, a, a quarter of a century, we'd have had other teams breaking into that um, monopoly. There have, other teams have reached the grand final. Hull have been there. Warrington have been there. Um, and they're spending a lot of money and and 
can't quite seem to get their hands on the, the trophy. Um, it'll be their year one year, but um, yeah. they've got well, there, obviously. Um, Castleford have been there last year. Salford got there, which was the, the most amazing story because they're, they're not one of the, the glamorous clubs, one of the big clubs. And you want to see clubs like Salford having a chance of, um, of getting to the big games. But the fact is, it, it hasn't led to more teams winning, um, winning the competition which it, it should have done by now. So you have to wonder, well, is it is it working in that regard? Yeah. And if it isn't, then, then should, should clubs just be able to spend what they want to spend? Um, that is an argument I think there's some there's some merit to. I, I personally think you need to sort of protect clubs from themselves to a certain extent to prevent them spending money they, they can't afford. But... Um, I think it's certainly a, a, there is a legitimate argue, argument for saying, well, um, that the clubs, if a club can believes it can afford to spend four million quid on players, then they they should be allowed to do that. Yeah, um, and and as you've just rightly pointed out as well, it doesn't guarantee success. You know, we've seen in every sport clubs spending multi millions, and well. In general terms, you would say the richer clubs do generally feel finish top of the pile, whichever sport you're talking about. There are always the sort of fairy tale uh, stories like Salford last season, and there are also plenty of clubs who, like Warrington, have invested heavily for years and years, and although they've won the Challenge Cup, still haven't managed to get uh, their hands on the grand final trophy. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, good good management and and good coaching and sensible signings can go a long way I mean they've, obviously they've had that at Salford for the last um, last couple of seasons or certainly last season and, and you'd say this season as well um, although losing Nile Evolds to Castleford is going to be a big blow for um, a big blow for them but Castleford are an example of a team who aren't the richest club in the game but they've sort of pulled the, the themselves up by the bootstraps through um, some excellent recruitment and some outstanding coaching from Daryl Powell who's developed a real team spirit out of the club and that's taken them a long way and further than clubs who are spending, you'd think, um, more money or certainly as much money. So, you know, there, there is a lot to be said for um, for smart management. Yes. It, it's just, it is a, a tricky issue, isn't it? I, I think certainly... I'd be concerned that, that at this stage, even with the fallout from COVID-19, that at this stage of, of Super League's existence so far in that they, they were talking about reducing the salary cap, um, I'm just not sure how, how that, that reflects particularly well on the competition. As I say, but these are extraordinary times. We all know the financial hit clubs are taking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's one of those, ever since the salary cap came in, it's one of those that's been debated for and against and some people want it and some people don't. And as you say, I think one of the good factors of it, although again, it, Bradford proved the exception to the rule, the fact that it does stop clubs from overspending. Uh, but you, I don't know if by some lucky chance I found out that a great uncle of mine owned an oil well in Texas and he'd left me a lot of money and I wanted to buy Wakefield. Uh, you'd like to think that you could invest the money you your money as you would like to try and you know bring Wakefield up the table further. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, not. There aren't too many other businesses where you're prevented from 
spending money that in theory you can afford to spend. Yes. Um, but sports a special a special case, isn't it? Um, it's interesting that, as we understand it, that the competition's more or less split right down the middle. I think when the cap was increased last time, um, in 2017, I think it was a 6-6 vote and the RFL had the casting vote, um, the RFL administered the salary cap rather than the Super League. And at the moment, it seems like it's uh, six in favour of reducing it, five against reducing it, and one not made the minds up yet. So it, it is a, an issue that sort of polarised the, the sport, split it down the middle. Yeah. Um, hard to say which which way it'll go at um, at this stage but as we keep mentioning that the clubs that don't want to spend or can't spend 1.8 million won't have to no. um, next year whatever the decision is yeah, well as you mentioned a bit, a bit earlier in the program Peter there you know English again is as an example of Clubs that have got money, you know, Warrington have got money to spend, uh, investing big. You'd imagine it's costing them a small fortune to bring him across. Um, well, certainly, well, certainly yeah, a signing not- beyond the, the the realms of a lot of the teams in Super League, and you'd suspect most of those who are wanting the salary cap to be reduced. But the converse side of that is the great publicity it's bringing in. Yeah, exactly. That's the point I made earlier, it's it's one of the top trending. Um, topics on on Twitter. It's got everybody in rugby league talking. It was a, a real bombshell when the news broke. I've not normally you, you get an idea when things like this are yeah offing. And it, um, reports in Australia today were the first I'd I'd heard of it. Um, and I think it took everybody in the sport by surprise. I was talking to a, a club chief executive this afternoon who hadn't heard and was quite um, quite surprised when yeah. I sold it. Um, so it's been a well kept secret, and, and publicity wise, it's it it's been already proved its value. I think for um, for Warrington, and, and next year they're going to be marketing on. You know, Greg Inglis is coming. Get your season tickets to see Greg Inglis every week, yes. and it's going to attract a, an awful lot of attention. Um, as Sonny Bill did for um, for Toronto ahead of this season, because it doesn't guarantee a big name like that doesn't guarantee results as Toronto are finding out, but you drop a player like Inglis into a squad already as, as strong as Warrington's and you'd expect that they're going to be pretty successful. Yeah. And just just as a point of interest going the other way, I, I noticed just before we came on air that the whole <coughs> three-quarter Ratu now Largo, he's switched codes back to Bristol Bears, who I know they're a big spending rugby union club. Um, so again, Super League always, you know, <laughs> in danger of losing players to outside uh, outside sources, particularly at this time when cl- clubs haven't got a lot of money and may not be able to offer maybe what they could have done twelve months ago or whatever. So something else we may have to look out for in coming weeks. Uh, yeah, it's a real shame that he's a he's a exciting player, a yeah. talent. He's gone really well for um, well for Hull. But um, he's in he's in the army, so he's, he's taking time out from that to, to play professional rugby. And I believe he has um, his roots are in in the south. His family are there, um, so it's not particularly surprising. He, he was spotted playing rugby union, so it's it's not a huge shock. He's not yeah. a, a 
down in the world rugby league player from the Heartlands. But even so, it's it's disappointing he's um, he's going, and and that is the sort of thing that the sport will risk when um, when it it is financially pushed as it as it is at the moment. I mean, rugby league's never had um, an awful lot of. Um, Sorry, get my teeth in. It's never been a particularly cash-rich sport, and that's not really any sign of that um, of that changing at the moment. No, um, that's the that's the biggest issue facing rugby league. We need more money in the game. Yeah, and uh, you know, conversely, again, hopefully the signing of English, you know, he'll he might attract other players, and obviously, the, as you say, the money Warrington make from his signing will hopefully be reinvested in the game. So there are some positives as well. Um, just moving on from that, Peter, again, news that's come through today that the Challenge Cup final has been postponed. I don't suppose a big surprise, but all the same, sad news. Yeah, and the list, list of surprising things <laughs> yeah. that have happened this week, that's probably um, right down there at the bottom. It was inevitable, wasn't yeah. it? The semi-finals were due to be played in less than a month's time, um, and we've not got past the sixth round stage yet um so there's two rounds to go before the semi-finals there was absolutely no way they were going to get it in in july i know that the sport is hoping to be back in july yes probably behind closed doors but even even if it was you, you wouldn't be able to get the um to get the rounds in before um in time for the competition final to be staged at um at wembley and on july sem- uh 17th or 18th and i I don't think crowds are going to be allowed into stadiums in July, it no. seems, at this this stage. And they wouldn't want to play the Challenge Cup final behind closed doors, obviously. So it's inevitable. It's interesting that they're saying it's postponed rather than cancelled, as with the Magic Weekend. Um, and they're also saying that they, they're still hopeful that it um, could be played at, the final could be played at Wembley. I think that's extremely unlikely that yeah. that will happen um, this year. So I, th- I think it's just it, this has been inevitable for a little while. It's a shame because they were trying something new this year with the final being brought forward to July from its um, more usual August date, and now it's going to be played later than ever. So that's yeah. just the way the cookie crumbles. But um, hopefully we will get some sort of Challenge Cup competition completed. Of course, some some clubs have um, have already been playing in it. Um, we've had five rounds completed. Um, I, I don't think anyone in the sport wants to see the, the competition abandoned no. for a season. But fitting it in isn't isn't going to be easy. We all know that, and I think it's pretty unlikely that the 1895 Cup, which was due to be played as the curtain raiser to the final and hasn't started yet, the, the rounds haven't begun in that. I think that's something that's that's likely to go for by the wayside. Um, over the next few weeks, sadly. Yeah, I think somebody made a point on Twitter which is quite interesting uh, regarding the Championship and League One clubs. Uh, if their season folds, what would happen to the Challenge Cup for the the odd clubs from that competition that still remain in the Challenge Cup? Yeah, I well, I haven't made a decision yet. Last week, didn't we? Um, yeah, it would be very difficult. I mean, technically, I suppose they could they could continue till they get knocked out, but it would be difficult yeah. for them. 
um, as we say every week, it's just there are so many variables yeah. to take into account. It's it's whatever happens, it's going to be a difficult decision, and it's not going to please everybody. No, it's uh, again. <laughs> I think a phrase we've been used more than unprecedented even is the fact that everything does seem to change all the time, and you think, oh, that, that'll all go down that path. Then all of a sudden, somebody throws something else in, and it's like, oh, well, we might only be left with six or eight teams in the Challenge Cup. What do we do then? And yeah. you know, yeah. another headache for somebody to solve. Fortunately, it's not me. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, absolutely. We can just complain about whatever they decide to, yes. they decide yeah. to do. But, um, Give us something to yeah. talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a tough, tough issue all around. And. Um, these last few weeks when nothing else has been happening, myself and Peter have been chatting about uh, looking back in time at different characters who've played the game or different games we've enjoyed watching and so on. This week we thought we might look at a few games that we'd reported on that may be interesting or amusing or whatever whatever reason. Um, would you like me to start, Peter? You you can start, Brad. I know one that that will be on um, will be on your list. Um, I, I think uh, in Wrexham in yeah. Super League ten ten years ago. Tell us uh, tell us about that. Yeah. Well, this this is my one claim to fame and fills six pages of my eight page autobiography. <laughs> the time I substituted for Peter when uh, I think he, he was ill at short notice and. It was the first game of the season, Leeds Rhinos v Celtic, Celtic Crusaders. And um, obviously the desk needed somebody to go at very short notice with it being the first game and we built up to the game all week, or Peter had. Uh, so I, I was informed that if I, if I could go, then I was going, so I said I would. Uh, but I only had a, my small car and I wasn't prepared at all, obviously, at that, that kind of notice to travel down to Wrexham for the game. So I nipped home and... Uh, picked up a jumper and a few other bits and had a bite to eat. And then I went into town uh, to swap cars with my wife because that was a better car, basically, for getting getting down there. And uh, it all was going well until we got to the outskirts of Wrexham and all of a sudden the heavens opened and it started snowing really heavily. And I don't think I probably was the only person heading over from Yorkshire who wasn't, ex- who wasn't expecting the snow because... During the day, it had been a lovely, a lovely sunny winter's day. Um, so we pulled into, or I pulled into the car park at Wrexham and got all my bits together. And it was then that I realised I'd forgotten my coat, <laughs> 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 which was a nightmare. So obviously the snow was getting worse and it seemed to be getting colder and colder, especially after I got out of the warm car. Uh, I had a word, I think it was with Phil Daly from the Rhinos, did they have some kind of training coat, and unfortunately they didn't. And uh, our colleague Dave Craven, who's famous for arriving at the last minute, I was hanging on in the hope that Dave might have some kind of spare coat in his boot, but he didn't either, typically. So in the end, I I got the... With having taken the family car, there was at least a, a car blanket in there. So I was able to take that and, and, and my jumper and I wrapped the blanket round my knees and cuddled up to the two people next to me in the press box and uh, somehow got through the game in one piece uh, <laughs> before the shivers really set in and I managed to file my copy and everything and get back home safely and uh, the thing I was always grateful for after that day was I didn't actually come down with anything which I think 
I'd have been a hot favourite for given the temperatures and switching between hot and cold and back to hot again. Uh, but yes, that's uh, my little rugby league claim to fame the night I forgot my coat. The good thing was Leeds won. The, get, the game did go ahead. I think it was on Sky, as I recall, so it, it wouldn't have been called off anyway. But uh, I, th- I always remember a picture the Evening Post had of Keith Senior and it... Leeds that season, I think, played in an almost fluorescent, or it seemed that night against a snow, a fluorescent yellow away kit with blue, which seemed to make him even more vivid. Um, <laughs> that was a just one of the things as well that I remember from that night and obviously got a few, as you would expect from my the gentleman of the press, I got a few <laughs> comments and sorry, mate, I haven't got a spare coat either. So. <laughs> Yeah, people still, uh, people in the press box still talk about that. That's why, dear listener, why I'm I'm not allowed to miss any matches because uh, <laughs> because when I do, that sort of chaos ensues. Yeah, but it was a, it was a, it was a great experience anyway, and you know, and as I say, I was still can have a laugh and chat about it ten years on. So, what's your favourite game you've covered, Rich? I'd say probably Wakefield's grand final uh, win in 1998 against Featherstone Rovers, um, which I think be fair to say is one of the, the best games of sport I've ever seen. Not necessarily for the sort of overall quality of it, but just the, the sheer excitement and the fact that it was so uh, seesaw and roller coaster. And I, I'm in fact, at the moment, in, in the process of putting a piece together for our sister paper, the Yorkshire Post. Uh, about this game and my memories of it um, and the fact that you know, Wakefield had missed out on Super League a couple of years before. Uh, they'd, they'd won the division that year um, by about four points from Hull KR. Uh, but the thing was, Featherstone had beaten them twice in the league. Wakefield only lost seven times all season and two were to Featherstone, who still finished ten points behind them. Um, and we went into the game... Uh, Wakefield only had one playoff game again with the, the old route with the playoff that they played and beat Hull KR so went straight through to the final whereas Featherstone had had three games but the last game they'd thrashed and obviously demoralised Hull KR I think that was about 54-6 or something so it was a matter of would Featherstone be able to manage one more game or you know would Wakefield rested up and kind of fully fit almost have too much for them and uh, you know, say again, just my memory isn't that brilliant. Of course, I've been looking back on YouTube uh, over the last few days, just getting some ideas again of how the game went. And Wakefield had opened up an 8 0 lead through Roy Southernwood and uh, Josh Bostock, the, the guy we mentioned the other week, the tall guy who didn't have a bed. And then, <laughs> and that, but Garen Casey, who was an important player for Wakefield that season, he, he, um, Missed both of those conversions, and then I think Featherstone pulled a, a converted try back to make it eight six, and then just before half time, Bostock went in again for Wakefield. So it was twelve six, but Wakefield had had a lot of possession, but not really been able to turn it into points. And uh, I don't know if you recall, Peter, but that probably you'd be at the game as well for the the, the YUP. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the, the second half, um, Featherston, you know, answered my question very emphatically because they scored two very quick converted tries through Chico Jackson and Steve Collins and Richard Chapman converted both of those to, 
and all of a sudden <laughs> Wakey were 18-12 down from beginning to fear the worst. Then Wakefield had a try disallowed for a knock-on, but Casey uh, nipped through and scored and added a conversion, so it was back to 18-all. Then Adam Hughes went on a famous run, the on-loan lead centre, a player I really liked that season for Wakefield. He, he had a great season for them, uh, really strong running centre. And I can still see him in my mind's eye tearing up that left touchline at Huddersfield. Uh, but as the, the cover came across, he kicked ahead and he couldn't get to the ball in time. You're beginning to think, you know, was that our chance? Then when Kyle Hall, uh, the current, I think he's the chief executive of Doncaster now, Kyle, he, he scored in the corner to make it 22-18, but Richard Chapman didn't kick that goal. And uh, then the, the moment everybody still talks about, Featherstone fans in particular, uh, where Kyle Pratt had the try disallowed uh, very late on. Um, Nick Oddy calling play back. I think he got a signal from his touch judge saying there'd been a knock-on and obviously the Wakefield players as well in back play. And between him and the touch judge, they gave the knock-on. And perhaps almost inevitably from that scrum, Wakefield worked the ball forward and Franny Stevenson uh, smashed over for the try, which Casey again converted um, to give Wakefield a two-point victory. Just an absolutely fantastic game, uh, which would seem, again, was was in doubt until the last minute and probably made the sweeter by the fact that, you know, the team I wanted to win did win. And uh, I was pleased for Andy Kelly as well, who was a, a, a great coach at Wake and a, and a really nice guy, Andy. And, uh, you know, he, he a former Wakefield player uh, and he took his hometown team back into Super League, which by hook or by crook... Um, Wakefield have stayed there ever since, which I don't think anybody would have given them a chance of, given what's happened over the last 22 years or so. Uh, But yeah, a tremendous night. And I I took my dad to that game. It was, I mean, he was a big rugby league fan in the sixties, but you know, work and other things. He didn't, he didn't watch the game anymore really. And my dad had always said that his favorite game of all time was when Wakefield beat Australia um, in the early sixties. At rugby league, and he, he always, although he's a big cricket fan, my dad, he always said that was the best game of any sport he'd ever seen. So I was pleased he was there that night to see a, a thriller. Uh, he, he didn't particularly like the modern game of rugby league, it's fair to say. He was a bit more old fashioned, uh, you know, he thought it was a bit too biff biff crash for him, but um, he, he saw them win, and, and, and that was something else I've always remembered about that night. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And if um, any listener has got a favourite match you want to, to tell us about, um, yeah, certainly. drop us an email or a, a tweet, it'd be great to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, echo that, definitely. So so what was yours, Peter, would you say? I mean, you've you, you, so many to choose from compared to me. but uh. Yeah, I, I probably, I, I don't think I'd be able to pick a single favourite game. I've got games that... that stand out for for different reasons really i mean i've been very lucky to cover all eight of rhino's grand final wins and they were all special yes in one way or another and it, it's difficult to even pick a favorite one of those i mean the, the treble winning grand final was just was just something that was very special because things like that obviously don't happen very often greatest day in the club's history without without a doubt but 
I mean, I've got very fond memories of the 2004 Grand Final, which was Leeds' first um, championship for, for 32 years. That was that was special. And some league games that, that are just a little bit different to others um, stand out. I remember 1997 when Leeds beat, early in the season, beat um, St. Helens. Yeah. And that on Yes and Harris's full debut. Um, Leeds were in front a lot of the game and clinging on. Bobby Goulding scored in the last minute next to the posts to leave um, St. Helens one point behind and then missed the conversion, sort of Don Fox style. Yeah. With not quite the last kick of the game, but very nearly. That was a that was a memorable one. I remember Leeds winning at Bradford at Valley Parade in the Challenge Cup in 2000, and, I think it was 2001. No, sorry, 2002, when everybody had written them off and Bradford had won the World Club the week before and people were saying they were they were going to be unbeatable that season and Leeds shot them. Um, I remember a game in the playoffs at Perpignan in 2012, which was memorable for a lot of reasons. At short notice, Leeds fans obviously couldn't make it. Uh, it was a hostile crowd Friday night in Perpignan. Leeds had finished fifth again and, and weren't expected to get to the grand final. Um, naturally, catched a lift with with Sky to that one. They had, they right. um, hired a plane <laughs> to cover the match and, and took all the crew out on that and managed to, to um, stow away on on that <laughs> thanks to, to Sky very kindly. Um, and that was a that was a full full day job. So I set off at three in the morning or something from where I live in York and, and got home um, about. Um, seven o'clock the following morning, but yeah. but Leeds won that in good style. And that was a that was a, a terrific night. Um, so there's a lot. I mean, one game I look back on particularly fond. It wasn't even a first team game. It was an academy game, grand final at Hull in about. Um, I have to check the exact date. I think it was about 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, Luke Gale was playing for Leeds Academy at, at the time. And uh, Leeds won this academy grand final one nil right. thanks to a late um, a late loop goal drop goal. And yeah, that, that's something um, that that would be up up in my probably top five favourite games just because it was so unusual. Yeah, I've never seen a nil nil. Um, I've seen obviously hundreds and thousands of matches, um, but never seen a nil nil. And I think that. Is about as close as I got. I think it, it, the drop goal was about three minutes from time. Yeah. So that's um, that's a particularly fond memory. But um, but yeah, the, there've been a, a lot. I mean, some Great Britain games. Any time Great Britain or England beat Australia is, is memorable as well. I mean, the, the one at Wembley in um, I think it was '94 when Sean Edwards was sent off early on for a high tackle on Bradley Clyde and 12-man Great Britain won the game. That was. Um, that was really special. And we did a piece with Daryl Powell in the paper the other day, looking back on his favourite game, and he picked the 1991st test at Wembley. And um, that was another really, really big occasion and, and something that, um, that that would be in my, probably in my top 10 games as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know the listeners won't know, but when Peter's out doing the games generally for the Evening Post... I'm the guy at the other end putting them on the pages, um, uh, you know, for the for the evening post editions, and uh, I feel almost like I've I've kind of lived a lot of those games through Peter and his excellent match reports and analysis. Um, 
you know, as, as you say, sat there some nights and the famous rewrites, which again for listeners, perhaps one team were winning quite comfortably and the other team has come back in the last few minutes and either pinched the game or taken it down to the wire. And, uh, you know, we've had a few hairy nights that way as well, haven't we, with Leeds? And obviously our Leeds' success down the years has been tremendous, in particular for the Evening Post, uh, you know, helped us to maintain our profile and be part of the history of it as well, yeah. you know, some great That's nights right. down. And some some of the finals haven't been quite the same because they've quite often been played on, say, on a Saturday night like the grand final, so we put it together Sunday afternoon and so on. But the Friday nights, you know, there's been some special nights, hasn't there? Absolutely, yeah. The, I, one that obviously everyone remembers is Ryan Hall's game in 2015. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, I mean, you think about the treble, Leeds were literally one second away from the treble not happening. Um, the last play of the game, they needed to beat Huddersfield to finish top of the table. They were eight points down with eight minutes to go and, and um, kicked a penalty with just over a minute left, which seemed to be settling for um, for second place in the table behind Wigan and, and home advantage. And then um, from the restart, um, or in the set of six from the restart, worked the ball ball left, Danny Maguire kicks, chips over the defence and as Jamie Peacock often mentions that never worked, never yeah. worked and on this occasion it just <laughs> bounced up for Ryan Hall who'd had a pretty poor game and and he, he made the catch and outpaced Jermaine McGilray to touch down and, and that was just one of the most incredible moments um, in sport I've ever seen you, you get whoever um, you watch, you get moments like that yeah. Once or twice in a lifetime watching watching sport and that was just a phenomenal um, moment and that was a very, very major um, major rewrite. Um, yeah. <laughs> to try and get try and get that in the following uh, following day's paper. because um, obviously the, the match we bought was all about our leads had blown it and then and when they kicked the drop goal uh, the penalty to equalise it was all being changed to well they didn't finish yeah. top, right? They still got home advantage, and then suddenly they'd, they'd finished top, and um, and the, the trouble was on. That, that was actually Sky showed that as live on telly the um, the other night. Showed the whole sort of the broadcast as if it was happening um, happening live. And yeah. I, I think the first time I've actually seen it since then. Um, I was. I was <laughs> I was on the pitch at the end interviewing people and <laughs> a couple of people on social media saying, Well, what are you doing going on the pitch to interview people? But um our deadline was sailing yes. off into the distance yeah. and it was a, <laughs> it was a question about it. I just had to go on <laughs> go on and um, and interrupt Leeds while they were they were celebrating with the League Leader Shield. And that I think any fan that was there that night, um, as a fan in the, the Leeds end would probably remember that um, for as, as as long as they live really that there was about 10 minutes where Leeds had to wait for the League Leaders Shield which was in a helicopter oh, yeah. yeah I'd forgotten about the helicopter <laughs> it was a it was a gimmick yeah um, I mean it, it it was a gimmick no doubt about that but it really worked it really added to the, the yeah. drama of the occasion and the helicopter had been hovering over Wigan when um, when Ryan Hall scored, so he had to turn around and fly back to Huddersfield and, and park in a on a pitch or something on on Leeds Road, and then um, then they rushed the the shield to the stadium. But for 10-15 minutes, while 
all that was happening, the, the Leeds players were stood at the end in front of the fans and, and just sort of celebrating with the fans. And that, that was a that was a really good moment, sort of players and fans all together um, enjoying a, a very special um, special occasion. And obviously the fact that Leeds went on to complete the treble makes it even more um, more memorable. Yeah, yeah, I remember that night very well. And and as you say, I'm, for, and I'm sure we hit the deadline anyway, Peter, that night, as we always did. <laughs> well, we hit a deadline. It might not have been the right <laughs> yeah. one, but... <laughs> one would conjured up. But, but yes, yeah, so we have a brilliant photo as well um, on the YEP of Ryan Hall uh, breaking away that night. I, I'm not sure who took it. Could well have been our old friend Steve Riding um, or one of our other talented photographers. But uh, I saw it again recently and that was what struck me that Ryan Hall had Jermaine McGilvery, uh, you know, in, in his slipstream but beaten. And you're thinking how how fast must Hall have been shifting when he ran, when he ran that... Uh, down the pitch there, you'd be interested to see a timer on it, the, the speed he actually hit. Uh, but yeah, an amazing, amazing finish. Yeah, it's a shame for, for Jerry McGilvery, who's a, who's a good guy, um, and I've, he has spoken about this in, in the media, it's sort of the thing that the image he's always going to be famous for is sort of failing to catch Ryan Hall on, on that run to the line. I mean, it wasn't McGilvery's fault. He was, no, no. Who was um, he had no chance of, of of making the tackle, but he's he's in the background, and that's probably the most going to be the most um, remembered image of his his career, despite all his Great Britain caps and all his Super League tries and and his other achievements. Um, which is it's part of sport, isn't it? For every for every winner, there's a there's a loser. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly that that game is um, is one of the most remarkable things I've. Um, I've ever seen covering covering or even just watching sport. Absolutely fantastic memories. Just a couple of other quick ones from me before we finish, Peter. I think you touched on one of these games last week uh, when Wakefield beat Hull in 2004. Um, that was a yeah, cracking yeah, game in the playoffs. Uh, I remember going there for the Wakefield Express and uh, there was a real belief after that game uh, you know, that Wakefield might shock everyone and go all the way as Salford did. Uh, last year, but unfortunately, in the next game, despite leading fourteen nil at Wigan, they they went down eighteen fourteen, and seem to remember uh, the bitter disappointment after that game. I think that was Gareth Ellis's last game for Wakefield. Actually, I remember interviewing him afterwards, and uh, he wouldn't say he was staying, but he wouldn't say he was going, which told you all he needed to know, really. But uh, yeah, they were great, great memories too, and. Perhaps the daftest match report I've ever had to do was when I was working as a freelancer and that was down at Wakefield against Leeds, funnily enough. And uh, it was for the Daily Sport of all publications and it was two paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think if memory serves me, and it, again, it might have been the early Lower TT game, I'm not sure, but Leeds absolutely creamed Wakefield. It was about 66-14 or something and good luck to getting that into two paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. in the end I settled for far and I just tell, said to the copy taker it's just nobody in the world could get that game into two paragraphs even if they wanted to <laughs> but unless you just literally said Leeds beat Wakefield and it was all rather one-sided <laughs> there's not much more you could say uh, so that was that's one that always stuck in my mind as well um, if we if you to the listeners a normal paragraph would probably be 25 to 30 words and if you've got 80-odd points, the, 
the list of names alone of the scorers would take you way over <laughs> over your word count, I think. Anyway, I think we'll wrap it up there for this week, Peter. That was a, another interesting chat. I really enjoyed that. Uh, nice to look back on some good games and some good memories. And Thanks, Rich. Yeah. Nice talking to you. And let's say if there's any um, any listeners got any thoughts on what we've been talking about or anything um, you want to contribute, please let us know. Yep, you can let us know either via my Twitter handle, which is Richard By- at Richard Byron YEP, or Peter's, which is at Peter Smith YEP, or the YEP Sports Desk at YEP Sports Desk. There's also the uh, website uh, uk, um, where all the very latest uh, news and stories are and any updates on coronavirus and the situation in the game in general. Peter will be there bringing you the very latest each and every day. So thanks again for your time, Peter. Much appreciated and hopefully we'll be back again soon.